in, in preparation for teaching the book of Hebrews, I've memorized the entire book, and I go through it every day by memory, and, uh, and then the section that I'm going to preach on, then I go through that a number of times. Uh, uh, the week uh, uh, before I'm preaching, I go over it and over it and over it and over it. And as I do that, I'm, I've come to the conclusion that the Bible, the Word of God, is infinite in its depth and its uh, application and its teaching uh, to us. I mean, you, you just can go deeper and deeper and more and more. And I often think about heaven, and I think, I wonder what it's going to be like when I get to heaven and I have a mind that's healthy and no sin and like Jesus. How, how will I be able to think, reason, ponder? And then I think about as I look at these passages of Scripture that we look at each week, and as I try to think about them, figure them out, I, I think, I wonder what it's going to be like when I get to heaven as I read a passage of Scripture there. I wonder how, am I going to get it all just right now, all of it? Or even there, is there going to be a little bit of a process of discovering what's there and digging it all out? So tonight we're on Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, and it's a great little uh, section, three verses, and we could go on it. This passage we could do a, ser- a, a series for a year, but we'll try to get through it tonight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, you know, Paul kind of gets the reputation of being a tough guy, and he was. I mean, how many people have you ever heard of that get stoned, buried up with rocks, uh, clobbered on the head with rocks the size of a softball, dozens of them to the point that he's like he's buried, and then gets up and shakes the dirt off and goes to the next town? Uh, That was Paul. He was a tough guy, and he endured a lot of difficult situations. But in this passage, he says, my beloved, I've never called any of you that. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. My beloved, there he goes again, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. As you read the writings of Paul, you'll see those kinds of words all through his writings. He, he constantly is calling those whom he's writing to his beloved and his companions and his loved ones and that they're his joy and his crown. He just kind of talks to people like that. And I was going over it for about the dozen time uh, today, and I thought, I don't ever talk like that. I've never called James my beloved. I've never even called him good-looking or my joy or my crown. Nothing like that. I mean, I've said, buddy, Dave, have I ever called you my beloved? What would you do if I did? Paul was quite the guy, and he was working on relationships. And so I thought today, I wonder if I should sort of work on this a little bit. So I'm going to start calling Dave my beloved instead of Dave, and we'll see how that all goes. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. My beloved, I urge Judy and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, indeed true companion. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. 
together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's a name there, Clement. In your notes, number one, tradition has it that Clement was a convert and disciple of Paul. He obviously is somebody that Paul knew uh, well because he's got him in his letter. And Paul writes a letter 2,000 years ago that's forever and forever read, as it were, going to churches all over the place, and there's his name. Everybody reads Clement's name, and so I, Paul probably knew that. And so he must have been somebody. He was one of Paul's converts. He led him to Christ. He discipled him. And then he became a disciple of Peter's. And uh, then he becomes a pastor in Rome. And then he becomes the head hog of the trough, that is, the bishop of Rome. Now, the bishop, what that became is in uh, the early church, they met in homes. So as the church began to grow in Rome, and they had a church, and then they started in another church, and they had another church, and they had another church, they were all in homes. So there was a fairly small number. This would look like a huge church during that time. And so what they did in order to connect everybody amongst all those who were pastors of home churches, one of them would become the head hog of the trough, as it were, and they called him the bishop, the bishop of Rome. And uh, did I ever tell you that story about the rich guy that called the church down in Texas? He said, I, I want to talk to the head hog of the trough. Secretary says, Who? Your pastor. We don't call our pastor by that title. We treat him with honor and respect. He's, I'm sorry, I just had a check for $10,000. I wanted to give you a church. And she says, I see that big pig coming now. <laughs> <clears throat> you know who the first bishop of Rome was? Peter. Catholic Church declares Peter to be the first pope. Uh, and he was the, uh, uh, he settled in Rome, became a pastor, started discipling, leading. That's why he discipled Clement. Clement became a bishop of Rome. And uh, as you study the Catholic Church, as you hear talk about their succession of popes, the infallibility of the popes, they have each one connected to the previous one, Peter being the first pope that existed. Uh, number two, Clement was considered to be the first of the early church fathers. The church fathers are sort of an official group of, of uh, leaders in the early church that wrote and started churches, and they're primarily in that group because they, their writings and their sermons exist today. And so you could Google church fathers, and there's a bunch of sites where you can read all the information that they wrote. They've even uh, worked on it so that it's more readable than what it would have been 2,000 years ago in whatever language they I've written it to, and I read regularly, often, the writings of the early church fathers just because I want to read what those wrote who were there, uh, who actually were with Paul and Peter and heard their teaching firsthand. And so Clement is considered to be the first of the earliest, the oldest of the church fathers. And I've read quite a bit of what he's written uh, in this uh, site that I go to. Number three, Clement is also considered to be the Catholic church, uh, considered by the Catholic church to be the fourth pope. Now, they didn't call them uh, popes early on. They called them the Bishop of Rome, but you had the first Bishop of Rome, the second Bishop of Rome, and then later they started being the Pope or the leader of the church, the Catholic Church, as it grew. And the first was Peter, the second was Linus, and he was also 
a disciple of Paul's, mentioned in Timothy. Uh, he was a, a cohort of Timothy, and then the next was Cletus, and then Clement. Number four, Clement was martyred by the Romans by having a ship anchor tied around his neck. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Ship anchor tied around his neck, he dropped him into the ocean off of a ship. So, what did you have to do with the Roman Empire to keep that from happening? You simply had to say, I recant, I swear allegiance to Rome and to the emperor of Rome, and I disavow all allegiance to Jesus Christ. Then you're, you're cool, you're saved. They got that chance before they would burn them at the stake, before they would cut their heads off, before they would pitch them off a ship with an anchor hanged around their neck. Um, and the, it's interesting to study the martyrs of the early church. Uh, Polycarp was one of the early church fathers who was burned at the stake. And uh, it's quite a little sermon he preached while the fire was burning around him, and they recorded it. Somebody wrote it all down. You can read that. Uh, probably a five-minute discourse that he yelled out while the flames were engulfed, engulfing him, and it's quite the testimony. And uh, uh, Clement did the same. You can read it as you look up his name. So he was martyred. They're going to have a special place. Did you know that martyrs get the greatest reward at the judgment seat of Christ? They get the greatest reward at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard of Joseph Sohn. He's one of the guys I read. He's still alive. Uh, he was a Romanian pastor during the Soviet years, and they would arrest him and beat him up uh, for preaching, and they would go out and preach some more, so they would arrest him again, and they'd pull out his fingernails, and they would, uh, then he would leave, and he would go out and preach some more. Then they would arrest him, bring him in, and break his fingers, and they kept doing this, and he kept preaching, and finally they said, we're going to kill you. And he says, yeah, cool, you'll give me my greatest reward. Thank you. Well, it so unnerved the, uh, the Soviet police that they, they said, we've got to have a meeting here. And they had a meeting, and they finally said, we're not going to give you your greatest reward. And they sent him to the United States, kicked him out of the country. I listened to him. I wasn't here from the front row listening to him talk. And I remember him saying that, and I thought, wow, I wonder how many people would actually do that. I mean, he was genuinely excited. He had provoked them and provoked them and provoked them, trying to get them to kill him, and they wouldn't do it didn't get his greatest reward. He's still alive. You can listen to him if you want to on YouTube, uh, sermons that he preaches. He's quite the, quite the guy. Um, number five, Clement is known as the Bishop of Church Unity. That was sort of a nickname he was given amongst the churches, the Bishop of Church Unity, because he was writing letters all the time. That's what the Bishop of Rome did with all the churches in the known world, was write letters to churches encouraging them. And almost all of his letters, if you go online, and look up church fathers, you will see under Clement the letters that he's written, and all of them are letters admonishing churches to quit squabbling and to be unified. And so he was such a, uh, uh, he was so adamant about this that he began to be called the bishop of church unity. Number six, Paul's letters were typically read to the gathered church out loud. And the early church fathers, they were as well. Clement's letters went to churches, and so instead of having a sermon, they would read his letter. And he would write his letter as a sermon to the churches. It would go to the churches, and then whoever was in charge of the various house churches would read that. 
And so as the bishop of Rome, that was one of his responsibilities, was to write letters to the churches, and those letters would be read as sermons in the churches. And so Paul's were as well. And uh, number seven, the theme of the book of Philippians is unity. Now, sometimes people will say the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. That's the second theme, secondary theme. The primary theme of the book of Philippians is, is unity. So Paul wrote a number of uh, letters in the, in the epistles uh, to the church at Rome and the church at Corinth and the church of Ephesus and this church of uh, Philippi and Colossae. And if we were to go down through the various letters that he wrote to the churches, what was the theme of every letter that he wrote to these churches? Unity. It was always unity. That was his theme in every letter that he wrote to every church that he wrote to. Philippians, I'll just read you a few sections out of the book that we've gone through already. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. So Paul said, there's some pastors around that are preaching Jesus, but they're, they're not doing it for the right reason. Some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Verse 27 of chapter 1, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy you know what I hear and I read often? We're not worthy. Only Jesus is worthy. Now, I understand the intent. I understand the motive, but it's not true. I am worthy. You are worthy. We've been made worthy by Christ, and we can act worthy. And we will be given credit by God for being worthy by the way we act and the way we talk. And he uses that word regularly in the epistles, Paul does, towards us being those who are worthy. And in fact, he uses it three times in the book of Philippians. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do you know what that means? You want to witness? You want to share the gospel with somebody that's going to hell? See him become a believer in Jesus Christ. You can only do that if God gives you the privilege and the opportunity. And he will not do that if you are not worthy. So you're not being worthy of the gospel in the sense that you get to be a Christian. He's writing to Christians. He's writing this to people who are already Christians. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ as being one who can be an ambassador for Christ, being uh, one who teaches the gospel, shares the gospel, is a model for what a Christian is like. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, like one individual in your church striving together for the gospel, worthy of the gospel because you are uh, unified. Philippians chapter 2, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Unity. Philippians 2 do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's talking about other people. Don't fuss and whine and cry about other people so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, blameless. If you 
pursue unity and have unity and don't uh, grumble about other people. You're, you're blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked in the, midst, uh, among whom you, uh, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In other words, you will be a very powerful witness for Jesus if you are an individual that pursues and maintains and uh, is one who makes unity. Philippians 4, this is where we're at. Let me read it to you again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved in, in the Lord, my beloved, I urge Judy and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. How'd you like your names in the book as those who probably were having a fight? Two ladies. Indeed, true companion, I urge you all, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my gospel in the... Co- help, you know what that means? That means admonish, encourage, scold, whatever. Help them to get along. Encourage him to get along. Number eight, the theme of all of Paul's letters to the churches was unity. Every letter he wrote, that was the theme of the book because that's where our power is, that's where God's blessing is, is in unity. Romans 12, beyond the same, you know, Paul would write his letters and the whole first half of his letter would be just doctrine, theology, deep stuff. And at the end of the letter, he would just give a bunch of commands. Bang, 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 bang. At the end, application. And so most of the time it was in the middle. Romans, it was uh, two-thirds through. Didn't wait, wait until he got to chapter 12. Be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. That sounds unity. Do not be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You ever met anybody like that? Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never, ever, never, never pay back evil to eat for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I quote that all the time, but I quote it a little out of context. I say, vengeance is mine. That's accurate, isn't it? I just don't put the rest of it in there. That's a nice verse, isn't it? Vengeance is mine. Don't you like that sound of that? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. That is evil in other people, but overcome evil with good. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that you all agree, this is the church at Corinth, and that there be no division among you, but that you may remain complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my, my brethren, by close people, that there are quarrels among you. And then the church at Ephesus, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, implore you to walk in a manner worthy. There's that word again, worthy. Worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, uh, to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then in the church at Thessalonica, esteem them highly in love because of their work, talking about pastors. Live in peace with one another. 
We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That was Paul's message to every one of the churches. Number nine, the primary purpose of leadership in churches is to maintain unity. You know what the average leader in the average church today thinks his job is? To come up with the best method, the system, the program. And I, I tell you this without any hesitation, God does not bless methods, systems, programs. There is no best one. It doesn't really matter what a church does. If they're unified, God blesses it. And if it isn't, he doesn't. And so uh, often leaders of churches say, okay, we're going to do it this way. Uh, Maybe it'd be better if you kind of find out what other people would like to do and get everybody together. Then you, the leader, maintain the unity. That's the leader's job, maintain the unity. So... I'll fuss at you if you don't read your Bible. I'll nag at you a bit if you don't show up to prayer meetings. But if you cause disunity in our church, uh, then I pray that God kills you. Well, that's a last resort. I probably will do something before then. Maybe take you out to lunch, have you pay. And sometimes I even suggest that maybe... You know, I think you don't seem happy here. Why don't you see if you can find a church that would fit you better than this church does? But uh, I don't ignore disunity, not even a little bit, because God blesses unity, and it's my job, uh, Mike's job, pastoral staff, so unity, God blesses it. Number 10, God blesses unity, not methods. You can buy church books on church growth, and they're full of methods. And all of them are pretty convinced that their method is the one that works the best, and if you put that one into practice, then you'll have a healthy, growing church. And every method under the sun has been done and tried, and everyone has failed, and everyone has succeeded, depending on the unity level of the church. Number 11, God blesses us when we individually seek unity and make personal sacrifices to maintain unity. So God is a God who blesses, and God is a God who withholds or withdraws blessing, and God is a God who curses on the basis of how we live our life and what we do. And we were to ask the question, what is it that God blesses most? Well, there are a number of things. How blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, and in his law he meditates day and night? Uh, there are over 50 blessing statements in Scripture that are conditional, and a major one is what we do uh, to the church, the bride of Christ. You've probably heard me tell this illustration before, but I like it. It's a good one. And uh, let's see. Jerry Hendricks, have you met my wife? He's not met my wife. Okay, perfect. So before the service, he came up to me. Now, this is a lie, but it tells it works the story. So anyway, he comes up to me and says, Pastor D, you are the best-looking pastor I have ever in my life known. 
just to let you know that. I'm pretty, I'm getting up there in age, and I've met a lot, but you are the best-looking pastor I've ever met. And I think, you know, I, you haven't been here for long, but I think you're probably the best preacher of any pastor I've ever uh, heard as well. And I, you know, I hear you're the best fisherman in the world. So what's my opinion of Jerry? He's a highly intelligent person. <laughs> and then my wife, Patty, walks in, sits down next to him, and he looks over. Whoa! You're ugly there in a fence post. I bet you can't cook either. I pity the poor guy married to you. What's, what's my opinion of Jerry? Still up there? I still think he's highly intelligent. Am I going to take him fishing? No. See, it doesn't matter a whole lot what he says about me, how he treats me. It's more about my bride. That will enhance or tear down anything that he ever does to me. A lot of people today say, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. I don't want to stand next to those dudes because they're going to get fried. You can't talk about the bride of Jesus like that and not have it impact your blessing level from God. Jesus loves the church, gave his life for the church. And the way we treat the church is how Jesus is going to treat us. And so when we work for unity, we are some of God's favorites. 1 Peter 3.10, the one who desires a good life, I do, I do. To love and see good days. Man, that's cool. I like that one. Must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. He must. You want to see good days, love life? Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in the context, that good, righteous action is unity. The evil is creating disunity. Number 12, God also disciplines us for causing disunity, especially in the bride, in his bride, the church. And so Paul writes about this often. And First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know? When Paul says that, that means this is sort of important stuff right here. You are the temple of God. Now, this is not talking about me, singular. This is a plural you. The Greek language has yous that are both singular and plural. We do it uh, only in the South. You all. Most time we tell whether it's you, you, or you by the context of the conversation that goes, this is plural. He's not talking about an individual. He's talking about the church. He says, don't you know that you, you all, Corinth, are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, does it do, uh, get any clearer than that? God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy. That is what you are. And then in chapter 11, he goes on and says, A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is communion he's talking about, and uh, they, they were causing division in the communion service itself. He who eats and, drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, weak and sick. Who made him weak? 
God did. Sick, who made him sick? I got the COVID. God did. And a number sleep. That means they're dead. Who killed them? God did. Somebody said to me, does God kill people? Sure he does, all the time. You ever read about those dudes that came and lipped off to Moses? How about those kids that called Elijah bald? Elisha bald. Forty-two kids got killed by a bear. And here he says, if you cause disunity in the church, God will bring judgment into your life, weakness, sickness, and death. If you damage my body, I will damage your body. You'll get weak, you'll get sick, and you'll be dead. Thirteen, there are key disciplines we all need to work on in order to be agents of unity and peace. Character traits that help out. We need to be patient. So patience is a character trait. You know what that means? Count to ten. Somebody comes up and they say something that offends you, hurts your feelings, the you want to retaliate. Uh, you want to uh, quote that verse like I do. Vengeance is mine. I'll pay you back right now. You talk to me that way, I'll talk to you back that way. And so patience is simply recognizing that everybody blows it. Everybody does dumb things, says dumb things. But my responsibility before God is to be patient, is to pursue unity. And when I do that, God will bless me. Patience is exercising self-control so as not to react quickly to other people's offenses. <clears throat> we need to choose to be quick to forgive, like immediately. It's a good thing mentally to say when somebody does something, for you to say, I, in your mind, I'm choosing to forgive that person, not because they deserve it, but because I have been forgiven by God of everything, and I didn't deserve it. So that's a great little line to memorize and to self-talk to yourself in conversations with your wife, your husband, your neighbor, your boss, your employee, your kids. Somebody says something that just kind of ticks you off. Mentally say, I am choosing, Lord, to forgive this person right this minute of everything, not because they deserve it, but because you have forgiven me of everything, and I didn't deserve it. We need to proactively choose to, be, to do good deeds and acts of kindness to people that we don't like. So let's be selfish here for a minute for the sake of motivation. Let's pretend I don't like you. You're not my favorite person. And I recognize that. I avoid you in the foyer. And so, okay, Lord, I'm going to do something good for that person. I'm going to invite him to go fishing with me. That's like the ultimate Why did I do that? Because I want God to bless me. Now, that blessing is not riches, it's not uh, uh, possessions, it's not its ministry. 
The ultimate blessing is the opportunity to do something in another person's life for eternity that makes a difference forever and ever and ever. You influence them in the direction of Christ like character or in trusting Christ. You get the opportunity from God. You earn the opportunity always by the way you act, the way you behave. And when you do good to your enemies, you become an individual who becomes very blessable by God in the sense that he gives you open door after open door after open door to make a difference in the lives of people. In our personal prayer time, it's a good idea to pray for people who regularly offend us. <clears throat> and that's to pray blessing, <laughs> not to pray fire from heaven. It is super important not to gossip about or slander other people that we don't like. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't solve problems. Uh, we can't deal with problems that people are a part of. It does mean that we're not going to act like uh, babies in the sense of whining and crying about poor me and this individual, how they've messed my life up and violated my rights. Now, we can solve problems and deal with things, and I can tell people, don't vote for that person. I'm not slandering. I'm dealing with the problem, but I can cry sometimes and whine with the best of them. Um, that's not a good thing to do. Whenever you, we blow it with another person, we need to confess to God it is sin if you don't want to get disciplined by him. If we offend or alienate another person with our response, talking now about family and in churches primarily. We need to seek reconciliation as if we are 100% the problem. In the early days of our church, uh, I used to offend people often. Now I offend them less often. But I was relationally challenged. I didn't know how to have a conversation with people very well, and my wife kind of coached me, but people would leave the church regularly. And I, would, I went to my mentor, and I said, this is what happened. He said, you need to go visit them. I said, I don't want to go visit them. He said, well, that's what you need to do. Ask them why they left the church. I know why they left the church. They don't like me. Well, you need to go visit them and find out why they don't like you. Um, that was incredibly painful. And he says, when you find out, you assume 100% of the blame. In other words, you're the reason they left. Now, you're not, but assume it. Pretend like it. Act like it. And then initiate reconciliation. You be the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. We all easily forget how important pursuing peace with others is, so making a daily commitment to seek peace with everyone is powerful. So every morning I pray my prayer of commitment. Today I will, Lord, obey you, seek you, follow you, do whatever you ask, no matter how difficult or how hard it is. Today I will love my wife the way Christ loves the church. Today I'll read your word. Today I'll be devoted to prayer. And one of my commitments is today, so far as it depends on me, I will be at peace with all people. I will be at peace with all people. So every single morning I make that prayer of commitment. Today I will, so far as it depends on me, be at peace with all people. 
God loves to give strength to those who ask for it, so along with the daily commitment, ask for strength. When I get done with it, I say, Lord, I can't keep these commitments in my strength. Would you please grant me your power, your strength, your spirit to keep these commitments today, to love my wife, to read your word, to be devoted to prayer, to love any person you sovereignly bring into my life and to seek peace, to pursue peace, so far as it depends on me to be at peace with any person that creates conflict in my life or in our church. And then God loves to give wisdom. He loves to give wisdom to those who are humble enough to recognize that they don't have it and seek it and ask for it. And so every morning I say, Lord, this is what I will do for you. I can't do it in my strength. Grant me your strength. And Lord, there's so much happening that I don't know exactly what to do. Would you grant me the wisdom to know what to do, what to say in any and every situation you sovereignly place me in? So I ask that every morning. And so a basic principle of prayer is much asking, much blessing, or much response from God. Ask a little, you get a little. Ask a lot, you get a lot. And so I ask for strength every day, every day, every morning. Every morning I ask for wisdom to know what to do, what to say in any situation that God sovereignly places me in. And the more I ask, the more he'll give. So if he gets sick, I wonder, did I do or say anything created or caused any sickness or weakness or difficulty in my church? Because God loves to discipline that uh, is in kind, as it were, so that we figure out what's going on. Now, I'm not saying that you're sick because of that, but I am saying that ought to be something that you consider, that you think about as a possibility in the sense of self-examination. Now, our church, JBC, is the I love you church. That's who we are. When I say I love you, I'm meaning saying I'll forgive you quickly of anything you do, no matter how bad it is, no matter how many times you've done it. Uh, I make that commitment when I say I love you. We choose to do that with each other. And so over the years, we've become, as far as churches go, a very, very unified church. Not without our problems, but we get along pretty good. I even get along with Jerry after what he said about my wife. And, uh, so let's pray. Don't forget, next week, not here. Father, thank you. We love you very much. Make us one. Lord, cause us to abound in unity more and more. Make us one like you, Jesus, and the Father are one. Give us the strength and the power from your Spirit to live life in a way uh, that to others around us we appear blameless without any fault because we are so um, unified with everyone in our life. You will supernaturally work in relationships you declared in your word that when our ways are pleasing to you, you make even our enemies to be at peace with us. And so I pray that we would uh, pursue peace, trust you, and glorify you by the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.